This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. On a beautiful Bahamian day in 1978, Carlos later was dressed as sharply as ever. He leaned back and smiled across the table at his business partner as he delivered the news. George was out. Carlos was taking over. Upon hearing this, George Young's blood boiled. After all they'd been through, the betrayal was unfathomable. He jumped up and flipped the table over, ignoring the shocked gasps and stares from the other patrons. Carlos couldn't do this, he screamed. They had built this business together. They were supposed to be brothers. But Carlos just kept smiling. He chastised George. Don't make such a scene. This only made George angrier. Suddenly, two menacing bodyguards appeared on either side of him, ready to haul him out back. Carlos smiled again and invited George to meet his new friends. As the men tightened their grips on his elbows, George realized for the first time he was out of his depth. Welcome to Kingpins, a podcast original. I'm Alastair Murden. And I'm Kate Leonard. Every Friday, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld. And why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power changed them and how it changed the community around them. You can find episodes of Kingpins and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Kingpins for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Kingpins in the search bar. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. This is our final episode in a four-part series about George Young and Carlos Leder Rivas. Last week, we learned how the two ambitious young smugglers became the most sought-after cocaine traffickers between Colombia and the U.S. But this rapid escalation came at a cost, straining both their mental health 
and their partnership. This week, we'll find out how greed and ambition got the better of both George and Carlos, turning them from brothers into enemies. And ultimately, we'll learn how their rivalry brought them down despite their perceived invincibility. By autumn of 1977, 35-year-old George Young and 28-year-old Carlos Later were millionaires and powerful junior partners in the Colombian cocaine business that would become known as the Medellin Cartel. George had spent most of the summer ferrying cocaine from Miami to Los Angeles several times a week. He'd return each trip with millions of dollars in cash for himself, Carlos, and their Colombian suppliers, including Pablo Escobar. Meanwhile, Carlos had been expanding their network of suppliers and buying a Caribbean island they could use as their base of operations. Though they were raking in money by 1977, neither man was satisfied. In fact, George was teetering on burnout. He wanted to transition to a less risky managerial role, hoping to cash out soon. Carlos, though, had endless energy. He was planning to build a cocaine empire on the Bahamian island of Norman's Key. Not only would it be a trafficking base, but it would also be a springboard to finally kickstart his political ambitions. He'd long dreamed of becoming a mythical leader like Adolf Hitler or Che Guevara. Norman's Key would be his first kingdom, allowing him to launch a revolution that would take over Colombia and eventually install him as its dictator. All his years of careful planning were giving way to his unbridled ambition. The only problem for Carlos was George. His partner wasn't on board with the Norman's Key plan. After he'd visited the island in the summer of 1977, it was clear that George's vision of their future was a bit limited. It didn't help that Carlos's new fugitive friend, Robert Vesco, piled on to Carlos's concerns, insisting that George would hold him back. Carlos knew he had a point, but still, the thought of confronting George was uncomfortable. There was no way he wouldn't take it personally. So Carlos took a route that felt far easier and safer. Consolidate his empire to cut out his business partner, then inform George. A little insurance policy. First, Carlos got in touch with Richard Barile, their distributor in Los Angeles. Carlos told Richard that from now on, he was going to be supplying the pure cocaine using some other smugglers. George would still continue his runs, but Carlos warned that he couldn't guarantee the quality of that product anymore. Richard had been in drug trafficking long enough to see through the lie, but also knew better than to say anything. Carlos's direct access to the best cocaine took precedence, so Richard's loyalty to George took second place. This was business after all. It wasn't long before George could tell something was off. Richard began complaining that the quality of the cocaine George brought to him wasn't as good as it used to be. It had already been cut by the time it got to LA, certainly not the pure stuff they were used to. George was shocked. With each run, Richard's distaste for the lesser product grew. In fact, sometimes he didn't even want the cocaine George was offering. 
This odd behavior caused George to call Carlos. Someone was messing with him, he worried, either Richard or Pablo Escobar or someone else in Medellin. Even worse, if Richard felt he could walk away from their supply, that meant he was getting high-quality cocaine from someone else. But Carlos dismissed George's concerns. Let Richard complain. He wouldn't matter for much longer. Thanks to Norman's key, their operation would soon be moving a thousand kilos a week into the U.S. easily. They'd have a lock on most of the cocaine supply in the country. George wasn't reassured. He had less faith in the Norman's key scheme and a nasty feeling that Carlos wasn't being straight with him. Carlos's frequent visits to the island meant he was more removed from the day-to-day -day operation, and he seemed increasingly less invested in it. Their business only worked if they were both committed, and George just wasn't sure Carlos was anymore. Over the fall and winter of 1977, George's fears were borne out. Carlos slowly pulled back on his regular responsibilities, turning his attention instead to Norman's key and vague promises for the future. The business's upward climb suddenly evaporated. Before long, Carlos had stopped arranging the cocaine deliveries, and George couldn't get power players like Richard to buy from him anymore. Only able to sell 10 or 20 kilos at a time, George's income took a nosedive. Fortunately, George still had one key Colombian contact. His girlfriend, Mirta, was the sister-in-law of Umberto Hoyos, one of Pablo Escobar's close associates in the U.S. Thankfully, George got along well with Umberto, and when he and Mirta eloped that fall, the two men became family. It was one small guarantee that at least George would have a steady supply of cocaine to traffic. But being married into an important cartel family also meant George had new reasons to doubt Carlos's reassurances about the future. George heard stories through the grapevine, and the more he heard about Carlos, the angrier he got. After Carlos had made his deal with Richard in LA, he was pretty much free to do and build whatever he wanted. He had millions in cash, the trust of Pablo Escobar, relationships with plenty of greedy smugglers, and an island in the Bahamas. He didn't have to answer to George anymore, or anyone else for that matter. With his mentor Robert's help, Carlos poured money into Norman's Key. He dredged the marina, turning it into a harbor for freighters and bought a dramatic seafront mansion that he called the Volcano. He was a king, or at least he thought so, and soon he found himself surrounded by sycophants. Needless to say, plenty of them encouraged his harebrained schemes. In one case, when the island's few remaining neighbors began to complain about the increased air traffic, Carlos concocted a plan to scare them off. A few days later, a freshly blood-stained yacht was found floating just offshore. The neighbors took the cue and decided to spend their time elsewhere. Carlos's antics weren't only exacerbated by the fact that almost all of his employees were cocaine users. High on their newfound wealth and every drug they could get their hands on, the residents of Norman's Key turned Carlos's property into a pleasure playground. 
And for the first time, Carlos let himself enjoy it. For most of his smuggling career, Carlos hadn't had much interest in the party culture that went with drugs. His mind had to stay sharp for deals. But now, on Norman's Key, he'd already made most of the big deals to ensure a thousand kilos a week moved from Colombia to the US. It was time to enjoy the fruits of his labor. What started with a few lines of cocaine quickly became an addiction to basuco, a Colombian version of crack cocaine. The parties his underlings threw morphed into orgies. Before long, it dawned on Carlos that he and he alone was the law on Norman's key. But as Carlos was settling into his new role as a debaucherous dictator, George was back in the US, hearing stories of his supposed partner's astronomical success. And in early 1978, George finally decided to do something about it. Coming up, George and Carlos take out hits on each other. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. In early 1978, 35-year-old George Young decided to confront his duplicitous business partner, 28-year-old Carlos Later. George knew he'd been cut out of the cocaine trafficking operation they'd built together, which George felt he'd actually done the bulk of the work to create, without Carlos even having the guts to tell him. So George called his former sworn brother and told Carlos to meet him in Nassau. The two men met at the Holiday Inn bar in the Bahamian capital, the fanciest hotel in town and Carlos's favorite spot. Before he even ordered a drink, Carlos knew what he'd tell George. Sure, his soon-to-be ex-partner wouldn't be happy, but Carlos held all the power. Carlos laid out what he'd been up to for the last few months and how everything was set up for him to move on. George was appalled to find Carlos so blasé about the whole thing. He didn't even seem sorry for lying and leaving his partner high and dry. The final straw was Carlos's comment that Norman's key was his empire and there wasn't room for anyone else to help run it. George lost it. He swore that Carlos would pay. Carlos's ego and political ambitions made him think he was invincible, and George wanted to quash that. He might have even swung at him if Carlos's two hulking German bodyguards hadn't suddenly appeared. As George was ushered out, Carlos just smiled. He wouldn't get his hands dirty. Bosses rarely do. After that incident, Carlos figured he was done with George and turned his attention back to Norman's Key. His trafficking business had become indispensable to both Pablo Escobar and his partners in the powerful Ochoa family. Cocaine was pouring into the U.S., 
and Carlos was taking home millions of dollars a week. But to George, who had a long road ahead to rebuild his own trafficking business, the constant praise for Carlos only stoked his resentment. Every time the Colombians introduced him as the guy who got Carlos into business, George felt he was losing their respect and his place in the industry. The only thing he could do was to prove that he too was indispensable to Pablo Escobar. It would require some sort of grand gesture, something that would show he wasn't afraid of the gossip or of Carlos's growing power. And so in late 1978, George got on a plane to Medellin. George had seen his fair share of fancy homes over the years, but Pablo's 7,000-acre estate, Hacienda Napoles, was something else. It was armed to the teeth with machine-gun-toting men, and the grounds were practically a zoo, with elephants and hippos wandering around. If the goal was to intimidate visitors, Pablo had succeeded. Yet Pablo was warm and welcoming. He'd wanted to meet George for a long time. It took guts for an American who only spoke basic Spanish to visit Medellin, and he was sympathetic to George's situation. Pablo felt Carlos had wronged his former partner. That didn't mean he'd get involved in their personal feud. Pablo may not have liked Carlos, but he still needed his services. For the time being, he'd stay neutral. Still, the journey itself was enough to cement their relationship and show the industry that George still had Pablo's blessing. When George got back to Miami, he was pleased to find that his stunt in Medellin had jolted his business back to life. He contracted with new pilots and new distributors, and before long, he was bringing in nearly as much as in the good old days. But Carlos was still doing better. He was moving exponentially more cocaine and making exponentially more money. And he was becoming a legend, making a name for himself beyond just the Colombian circles. The general public started to hear stories about the crazy cocaine kingpin who owned a lawless party island in the Bahamas and taunted the DEA from afar. All the fanfare drove George crazy. It just felt so unfair that after all the work he'd done and all the messes he'd had to clean up, Carlos was the one who was considered a brilliant entrepreneur. By 1979, George was still doing far more than the estimated lethal amount of cocaine, on a daily basis. And his judgment was starting to become questionable. At parties, he began boasting to his and Mirta's friends, which included associates of Umberto's and Pablo's, that he was going to take a hit out on Carlos. He was the reason for Carlos's success, and he promised that he could take it all away too. As ensconced as he was in his Norman's key empire, Carlos eventually heard about George's threats. At first, he dismissed them, knowing that George was a veritable nobody now. But when George kept talking smack, Carlos started to get angry. His ego, which was getting bigger by the day, couldn't stand someone else taking credit for his success. He was going to have to shut George up. One afternoon in Miami, George got into his car 
only to realize he'd been blocked in on three sides. Immediately, he knew something was wrong. He was a sitting duck for a gunman. He reversed, planning to plow through the small car behind him, but then changed his mind. If that took too long, it would still leave him exposed. He decided to make a break for it and jumped out of the car. He barely made it down the block when the car exploded. Had George stuck around any longer, he would have died. Everyone agreed that Carlos must have been behind the car bombing. No one else had a reason to want George dead. But instead of scaring George into submission, the attempted murder only made him double down. In fact, it was the tipping point for him to finally follow through on his threats. George headed back to Boston in early 1979 and reconnected with a few mob guys he'd known from his Danbury days. They helped him put together a team of military veterans to accompany him to Norman's Key, where he wanted to carry out the hit in person. He wasn't sure if he actually wanted to kill Carlos, but striking Carlos on his own territory would at least prove that George wouldn't be pushed around. George gave the mob team a $125,000 down payment to stock up on grenades and bazookas to distract the guards while George took Carlos out himself. But that was as far as the plot went. When Umberto heard about the plans, he scolded George for letting his emotions get the better of him. If he attacked Carlos, it would start a war amongst the cartel in Colombia that would get all of them and Umberto's family killed. George realized Umberto was right. He was letting Carlos get in his head. His grudge had drawn him away from what he was best at, smuggling drugs and making money. Let Carlos have his intrigue and grand schemes. George was done with that. By 1980, George had refocused on his business and was doing well. He, Myrta, and their two daughters lived in a sprawling mansion in Cape Cod, while his operation brought in millions of dollars a month. But just as success had made Carlos overconfident, it made George careless. His lavish lifestyle started to attract the attention of law enforcement. In October 1980, Cape Cod police busted one of his parties and charged him with possession of 11 ounces of cocaine. Uninterested in doing 10 years in prison, George skipped bail and headed down to Florida with his family. But life on the run wasn't as easy as it had been a decade earlier. A year later, in October 1981, George was arrested in a traffic stop and sent back to Massachusetts to serve his time. Sure, George was annoyed, but he wasn't too worried. He could afford a good lawyer and figured he'd be able to charm and apologize his way out of a long sentence. It'd be easy to jump back into business once he got out. Carlos's luck was starting to change too. Right around the same time in 1981, the corrupt Bahamian government, including the prime minister who'd been on Carlos's payroll for years, was starting to buckle under pressure from the US government. The Bahamian Prime Minister had held out and protected its drug traffickers for as long as possible. But when the US started to publicize the extent of corruption in the Bahamas government, the Prime Minister caved. 
Soon, the Bahamas were cracking down on drug trafficking, specifically focusing on Norman's Key. And the DEA had one last demand – to arrest and extradite Carlos. The Prime Minister reassured him it wasn't personal, which Carlos understood, of course, but it reminded him that his own success wasn't always the priority. As one last favor, the Prime Minister warned Carlos of the upcoming raids. Carlos had just enough time to escape back to Colombia before law enforcement caught up with him. As his airplane lifted off from his now-empty island empire, Carlos tried to look on the bright side. Norman's key had been a nice distraction, but it was time to get back to what mattered, his political ambitions. Perhaps going back to Colombia was an opportunity in disguise. He had money and reputation. He could start laying the groundwork for the revolution he'd always wanted. Taking over Colombia was the only way to prove he didn't have to bow to the DEA. Once his country rallied behind him, he would become an international figurehead, unable to be pushed around. Coming up, we'll find out how Carlos's hubris ultimately brought him down and how George got the last laugh. Now back to the story. At the end of 1981, 39-year-old George Young and 32-year-old Carlos Leda had both fallen from their pedestals atop the cocaine trafficking industry. While George spent the next few years in and out of prison, Carlos started building his next kingdom. Leading a successful revolution in war-torn Colombia was a tall order. The biggest problem was that his main rival for public support was also one of his closest business partners, Pablo Escobar. Pablo was popular, powerful, and successful, and far less interested in the spotlight than in the success of his business. He had worked hard to keep both his wealth and his cocaine operation from attracting attention, instead cultivating a reputation as a self-made Robin Hood who helped the poor. Carlos would have to work hard to match that reputation. His first step was to create a home base, a sprawling German-style alpine resort called Posada Alimana. Carlos poured $3 million into Posada Alimana, worth more than $9 million today, having it constructed practically overnight. If he couldn't have his island, he wanted his ranch to be as impressive as Pablo's. It also needed to serve as an effective base for his trafficking operations, which were still humming like a well-oiled machine. But Carlos also wanted Posada Alimana to be an homage to his idols, Hitler, Che Guevara, and now John Lennon. Carlos had a garish, life-size naked statue of the recently murdered Beatle built for the entrance to the estate. It was complete with a Nazi helmet, a bullet hole in the back, and the Spanish word for peace on Lenin's hand. To Carlos, this all made perfect sense. Just as Carlos's profile was on the rise, Pablo Escobar announced a run for parliament and then won. Carlos decided it was time to enact the next step of his plan. Carlos founded a Nazi-inspired nationalist party called the National Latin Movement. 
he began to hold grandiose rallies at which he gave passionate speeches that parroted Hitler's rhetoric. Carlos focused on getting as much press as possible, railing against the U.S. and spouting every classic Nazi conspiracy theory. However, he couldn't understand why his message about not extraditing drug criminals to the U.S. wasn't getting wide support. As Carlos was rallying the public, U.S. law enforcement hustled to build the case against him, which had been open since Norman's key. And what Carlos hadn't considered was how his showmanship might also embarrass and annoy the Colombian government. On September 2, 1983, the Colombian justice minister signed the warrant for Carlos's arrest and extradition to the U.S. Barely two years after his flight from Norman's Key, Carlos was once again forced to go into hiding, this time in the hard-to-police Colombian jungle. Furious at his own government's betrayal, Carlos had little to do except throw himself back into his cocaine trafficking operation. He knew how to bide his time. He would rebuild his empire under the radar and wait for the moment to re-emerge. But it had been years since Carlos had to manage the actual logistics of cocaine smuggling. It was a harsh wake-up call to realize he no longer had a monopoly on the market he and George had pioneered. Now, everyone was using private planes to smuggle cocaine to the U.S. Carlos's only advantages were his loyal relationships with Pablo and the Ochoas. Just when Carlos didn't think things could get worse, the Colombian justice minister was assassinated in April 1984. Pablo Escobar had ordered the hit, worried that the upstanding minister was becoming a threat. What Pablo hadn't considered was that he was declaring all-out war on the Colombian government and that the government was going to retaliate. Suddenly, Carlos, Pablo, the Ochoas, and all the rest of the cartel power players had targets on their backs. The government poured resources into the manhunt, forcing all the kingpins to flee the country. Carlos thought escaping to Nicaragua might be better than hiding out in Colombia. He struck a deal with the Nicaraguan revolutionary guerrillas known as the Sandinistas and got his smuggling flights going again from a Nicaraguan base. But he still had his contacts in Colombia, the Bahamas, and the US, as well as his reputation as one of the most reliable and effective traffickers in the game. But being on the run proved hard for a narcissist like Carlos. He couldn't stand to just disappear. So instead of lying low, he started his old preaching, saying that Latin American countries shouldn't extradite to the U.S. He regularly contacted journalists, published missives, and went on the radio threatening Colombian and American officials alike. Carlos convinced himself that maintaining a high profile would help his business. It always had before. But what he didn't realize was that it was now making him a liability to his partners. As Carlos hopped around between Nicaragua, Colombia, and any country in the region whose dictator could be bought off, he found that his income was starting to struggle. Even though Pablo and all the others swore they were equal partners in the organization, Carlos couldn't shake the feeling that his stock was falling. 
Around the same time, in 1985, George was building his comeback yet again. He escaped from prison and started planning one final trafficking job. After several years behind bars, George had decided that he was ready to cash out of the drug industry for good. All he needed was to get enough money to make it to Panama, where his millions of dollars were stored in offshore accounts. Umberto promised him a 300-kilo deal that would net him nearly a million dollars. George contacted an acquaintance in Florida, a farmer keen to tap into drug money. He knew a couple transport guys. Even better, the pilots they hired had flown marijuana for George back in the late 60s. Everything seemed to be lining up, and George had a good feeling. In a couple months, he'd be basking on his own yacht in the Mediterranean. But George's luck had already run out. The two transport guys were, in fact, undercover DEA agents. At first, they actually had no idea what George had been building over the past two decades and wouldn't have known had his old pilot buddy not told them. As soon as the agents realized George was one of the most well-connected men in the cocaine trafficking world, they knew they'd hit the jackpot. That May, on the day George was hoping to secure his escape money, the DEA busted the whole operation. There was no talking his way out of the charges this time. George was sentenced to 15 years in prison. There would be no payday in Panama and no quiet, luxurious life on the Mediterranean. Just months into his sentence, though, George heard through the prison grapevine that the FBI was hot on Carlos's tail and might cut a deal if someone could give them information. Naturally, George's old resentment bubbled up. He'd never been able to get back at Carlos for his betrayal. George had nothing left to lose, so he contacted the FBI. The agents on the case were thrilled. Over the course of nearly two weeks, George told them everything he knew about his former friend. And then he gave them an ace. He offered to personally help them catch Carlos. At first, the agents were wary of the offer. They'd been chasing Carlos for years to no avail. It seemed unlikely George would do any better. But George countered that Carlos was a man driven by his whims. He would come out into the open if he wanted to, and George knew exactly how to bait him. The plan came together quickly. The FBI would help George set up a ruse that he'd been living lavishly in the Caribbean. Word would get out to Carlos, who'd have no reason to believe George was involved with the feds. George would then contact Carlos himself, saying he had a hookup for a new business idea, arms trading. He knew Carlos wouldn't be able to turn down such a lucrative opportunity, which certainly appealed to his political delusions. Then, when Carlos came to the meeting, the FBI would arrest him. All the agents had to do was get the sign-off from Washington. It would be a hard sell, but if they wanted to get Carlos, they were going to have to commit. Unbeknownst to the FBI, they weren't the only ones out to get Carlos. In late 1986, Carlos made a fatal mistake. One day, while hanging around at Pablo's estate outside Medellin, 
he let his ego and machismo get the better of him. He shot one of Pablo's guys over a meaningless argument. To Pablo and the other cartel partners, it proved what they'd feared for a while. Carlos was an out-of-control liability. By murdering one of Pablo's employees, he had just made himself expendable. On the morning of February 4th, 1987, while George and the FBI agents were still waiting for approval on their plan, Colombian law enforcement stormed Carlos's estate outside Medellin. The Colombians wasted no time in extraditing him, and by that evening, he was in DEA custody in the US. Carlos was sure Pablo was the one who'd given up his location, although Pablo later wrote a public letter denying it. Carlos swore up and down he'd been framed, but the DEA wasn't interested. They had finally gotten their hands on one of the most wanted men in the world, and they weren't letting him go. Carlos didn't stop trying to make a deal. After all, that was always what he'd been best at. That spring before his trial, he wrote a letter to U.S. Vice President George H.W. Bush, who was leading Reagan's so-called war on drugs. Carlos offered to turn on the entire cocaine industry, giving the U.S. his full cooperation to bring in the other major players. Unfortunately for Carlos, the letter ended up in the newspaper, which George obviously read. Though he'd initially refused to testify against Carlos, there was still some honor amongst thieves. After this, all questions of honor were off the table. Carlos certainly didn't have any. So George reached out to Pablo. Before agreeing to testify against Carlos, he wanted to make sure he wasn't betraying the man who'd come to be known as the boss. Pablo immediately gave his blessing. George went on to be one of the star witnesses in the trial against Carlos. His testimony was partially responsible for Carlos's sentence of life without parole, plus another 135 years. It took Carlos several years to find a loophole in order to strike a deal. And when he did, it was by helping in the capture and conviction of Panamanian dictator Manuel Noriega. Carlos was then moved into witness protection, and his whereabouts are currently unknown. George's cooperation, meanwhile, got him out of prison in 1989. But as much as he swore to himself that he was going to live a nice, quiet life, he could never quite give up on the adrenaline of drug smuggling. He got back into the cannabis business and ended up back in jail in Massachusetts less than five years later. Perhaps, if George and Carlos's partnership hadn't fallen apart, they could have ridden the wave of their success for longer. If their early astronomical profits hadn't gone to their heads, they might have allowed their differing philosophies to complement each other rather than drive them apart. But then, people who are satisfied with the status quo don't become the most innovative entrepreneurial duo in the history of cocaine trafficking. George and Carlos always wanted more from their lives and were willing to gamble everything in order to achieve their ambitions. The truth that George and Carlos discovered is that, more often than not, the gambler loses. 
It was a wild ride while it lasted, but in the end, the life that gave them everything ultimately took it all away. Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. For more information on George Young and Carlos Leda Rivas, among the many sources we used, we found Bruce Porter's book, Blow, extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Kingpins and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Kingpins for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Kingpins on Spotify, just open the app and type Kingpins in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Nick Johnson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Kingpins was written by Kate Thorman, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Kate Leonard and Alastair Murden. <laughs>